Welcome to the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. We have a heart for you, sister, and a God-sized vision that you become a mighty, awe-filled woman of God who knows, believes, and shares God's Word in your areas of influence. And so we fervently pray Colossians 3, 16 through 17 over you. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Hey, listeners. This is the final Hosea recording of the summer. Thank you so much for joining us in God's Word. We hope that this study has grown you in your knowledge and love for God. If you've participated in the study at home or in person or as a volunteer, we'd love to get your feedback. Please visit DaytonWomenTheWord.com slash Hosea survey to answer some questions for us. Everyone who takes the survey will be entered into a giveaway for some great prizes. So head over there between now and August 6th to take the survey. Not only is this our last Hosea session, this is also the last episode of our podcast until our next season, season five, releases on Tuesday, September 4th. Our team's taking a summer break and we'll return to you in a few weeks with fresh new content. In the meantime, if you're local, be sure to grab your tickets for our live podcast recording on September 22nd. Tickets are limited and only available for a few weeks or until we sell out. Find all the details at DaytonWomenInTheWord.com slash podcast live. Please do it. We can't wait to see you there. And now here's the final session of Hosea on chapters 13 and 14. All right, sisters, session eight. It's our last night together. I'll let you take a minute to get settled. If you've been checking your email, you'll know that uh, we have a survey for you guys to fill out at the end of the session, or you could have already filled it out, that's fine. Um, Just asking you some questions about how the study went and asking for your feedback. Um, If if you want to look at the giveaways up close, they're outside on a table in the hall. Um, On your way out tonight, if you want, there are mugs and totes and studies for sale. Um, You can also make donations out at that table to the ministry if you'd like. I don't have a giant envelope. I couldn't find one, but... Um, Before I get started, I wanted to say some thank yous uh, for uh, all of our helpers for Monday night. Thank you to all of our awesome discussion group leaders. Can you guys give them a hand, please? And our substitutes. Thank you to our friends at FCF for helping with tech and with worship tonight. Give them, yes. They just fixed this computer and gave it life tonight. Thank you to our friends who helped write your discussion questions, Elizabeth, Amber, Mary, and Daisy. For everybody who brought food to share, for the Dayton Women in the Word team for all their hard work, and to all of you for saying yes to God and studying with us this summer. Thank you. 
All right, if you are wondering, if you don't know, ways to stay connected to Dayton Women in the Word after this study, you can join us at a teaching collective. You can join our private Facebook group, listen to the podcast, read the blog, come to our podcast live event in September. You can jump in with our reading plan, Dayton Women in the Word 365, et cetera, et cetera. If you have questions about this, come talk to me after or one of the team members that is here. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram. All the stuff goes out there, or you can join our monthly newsletter to stay on top of what's happening. That's where all the information goes out. That's where you'll find out about what's going on next summer, all of that. It's the best way to keep in touch with us. Okay. Tonight, oop, that would have been helpful right there. And then, that's the survey address. All the things are there. Um, tonight, Hosea 13 and 14 themselves are a little bit of a review of the whole book of Hosea. So we're going to revisit all the major themes. We're going to talk about Israel's unfaithfulness, God's judgment, and God's steadfast love. So these are our Sections tonight, Ephraim's destruction, God's fierce judgment, Hosea's final call to return, God's response of healing love, and the wise will heed the call. I'm going to pray, and then we will get started. Father, thank you for one last opportunity to look at the truth of your word, to look at the story of Hosea, the story of your people, and more importantly, to look again at you, to look at your character, to see who you are, to find your promises, to see your goodness. God, I pray that we would be tuning into that by your spirit tonight. We'd be looking for you tonight, that if we haven't been compelled to turn toward you and move toward you this summer yet, that it would happen tonight that we would continue to move forward towards you and that by the end of tonight, at the end of this teaching, all we want to do is praise you. Let it be so in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. We're going to start in chapter 13. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 3. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. Last week, we left off at the end of chapter 12 with a declaration that Ephraim would remain guilty for their sinful deeds. And as you know from your reading, that theme continues into chapter 13. Verse 1 says Ephraim was feared and exalted, but his guilt brought him down and killed him. Now this is past tense, which would probably have been confusing to the Israelites at the time, since they were prospering and nothing bad had happened yet. But we know from biblical history that the northern kingdom does fall, Ephraim the nation does die, and the northern kingdom does not endure. And Hosea jumps to the present tense in verse 2, describing the Israelites sinning again and again, making idols with great skill, kissing the golden calves they've made, and sacrificing their children. They are using their God-given gifts to create idols 
instead of creating in a way that honors God, the great creator. Their hands, which were forming the wood and the metal, were made by God. Their raw materials were his creations as well. It's all his, and they were using it dishonorably. God will not be compared to an idol, and he won't stand for people misusing their talents. Isaiah 40, 18 through 23 says this. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compares with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot and seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. What he's saying there is that the people are too poor to give an offering to God, but he delights, they delight in picking out expensive wood and the best craftsmen to make their idols. He says, do you not know, do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, God, who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Baal and the idols of Canaan are nothing compared to God Almighty. God is the one deserving of their kisses, of their homage, of their devotion, not calves. It is outrageous to think that the chosen people of God were paying homage to a hunk of metal and not the true God that created them and saved them. But humans do this all the time, then and now. We take something God gave us to glorify him with and bless the world with, money, talents, time, whatever, and we twist it for our own gain, or we use the gift to honor something other than him. The result of this unfaithfulness, as we know, is that the northern kingdom will vanish. God gives four different pictures in this section of things that disappear. They blow away, or they don't endure. Mist, dew, chaff, and smoke. Mist comes and goes. Dew is only around for a few hours in the morning. Chaff is the husk of the grain that would separate and be blown away during threshing. And smoke vanishes almost as quickly as it comes. And so it will be with Israel. Israel will vanish. The northern kingdom will be destroyed forever. The great kingdom they built will be gone. And why? Because the Lord didn't build it. They built it with their own hands apart from him. Let's heed the warning here and quit trying to build our own kingdoms. Amen? Let's quit making things that don't honor the Lord. Let's put all our focus and intention on seeking God and his kingdom, on things that will endure and never vanish, and then allow him to add everything else. I'm going to move into our next section. I'm going to read verses 4 through 9. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there, will, there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. 
So God's saying here, first, I'm the only true God. I'm your God from all the way back in Egypt. I'm the only one, I'm the only God that you can know intimately, and I'm the only God that can save. I'm the only God who wants a covenant relationship with you. There is no one else. There is none like him. God insists on being fully personal and requires exclusive loyalty. He is intensely concerned with what is most precious to him, and that's what? His people. God was the one who was intimate and close with them in the beginning, in the wilderness. He was with them when they were hot and thirsty, and he provided for them. Moses gave a similar reminder in Deuteronomy 2. He said, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through the great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. But when he provided, a dangerous progression began. He gave them food. They ate. They were satisfied. And then they became proud and forgot him. This is yet another reminder for us of the dangers of wealth and excess and prosperity. When we are satisfied in anything else besides God, we are prone to forget him. We are prone to thinking that we have gotten where we are on our own and we must live for satisfaction in God alone instead. He is the satisfaction that endures. His is the satisfaction that makes us whole. Another reminder from Moses, Deuteronomy 8. He says, take care lest you forget that the Lord your God. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And this is exactly what we've seen come to fruition in Hosea. The people have forgotten, and they will perish. They will perish, and it will not be pretty. God compares himself to four beasts, a lion, a leopard, a bear, and a wild beast. He says he's going to be lurking where they walk, falling on them, tearing them, ripping them open, devouring them. Jeremiah 5 gives a similar prophecy. He says, Therefore a lion from the forest shall strike them down. A wolf from the desert shall devastate them. A leopard is watching their cities. Everyone who goes out of them shall be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many. Their apostasies, or their turnings, are great. 
Verse 9 says this destruction comes because Israel is against their helper. Moses again, there is none like God, O Jeshurun, yet another name for Israel. There is none like God who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And in Isaiah 41, God's talking to Israel. He says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God's great love is shown in his willingness to help sinners. Yet the sinners of Israel, who don't even deserve his help, are blind to it. Let's not be like Israel. Let's not be blind to God's help. We can look around us every day and we can see instances of God helping us. I challenge you to look for them. Take note of them. Count the evidence of God's helpful hand. Remember that you were once an enemy of God in desperate need of help. And Jesus died to help you reconcile with God. And now you have an actual living helper inside you, the Holy Spirit of God. So let's be women who remember our helper. Verse 10. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up, and his spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. So we're used to Hosea's pictures. So we have a final few pictures here of judgment. The first is the useless king. This is a reference to the time of Samuel. The Israelites wanted a permanent human king instead of the judges that God had been appointing, even though God had declared himself their ultimate ruler. For Samuel 8 says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel goes on to warn them of the consequences of having a human king, but 
Surprise, surprise, they still wanted one. So God gave them what they wanted, and it would be their ruin. The Israelites trusted more in the seen than the unseen. So God gave them someone they could see, King Saul. But he was a disappointment. All human kings are a disappointment. They cannot protect their people, especially when the enemy is God himself, as it is here in Hosea. Chester says, what's the use of a king when you are up against God? None. There is no help except in God himself. Sometimes getting what we want from God is much worse than getting what we need. God knows what we need. He knows what is good for us. And that is not always compatible with what we want, especially when we are running away from him. So at times he gives us what we want, and that ends up ruining us. But the hope is that when we are, when we are at our lowest, we will remember him and we will turn back and we will learn to walk in his good ways. Isaiah 26, 9 says, For when your judgments are in the earth... The inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. The second picture is the bag full of sin. Israel's sins are being stored up by God. They are being listed, cataloged. It's as if he has a storehouse full of them. The same is true for us. Every sin we commit is noted and counted by God. It will not be forgotten by God even long after it is forgotten by us. Our sin is not forgotten until it is pardoned. And the same is true for the people in Hosea's day and in our own day that prosper even though their hearts are wicked. God hasn't failed to notice and he's not indifferent. He is storing up their sins in a bag too, patiently giving them a chance to turn and repent. And one day our bags will be full and it will be time to count all of those sins. If we know Jesus, he steps in and he pardons us from each and every one of them with his perfect life. He has paid for every last sin, past, present, and future. Jeremiah 31, 34 will be true for us in Christ. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The third picture is of the unborn child. This child won't come out of the birth canal, even though the labor pains are signaling him to come. He is stubborn. He is stupid. He is missing the signals. The unwise son reminds us of our need for a wise son. Jesus fulfills this need. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, Jesus became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He became wisdom. Like we talked about last week, Jesus was the perfect Israel, the perfect wise son. He did everything that Israel couldn't do. So he will be the one to ransom and redeem them and us from death. This moves us into uh, this section, verse 14 and 15. Isaiah says that he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. 
Now, Paul uses verse 14 to talk about Jesus coming again and defeating death forever. It's 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written in Hosea. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Christ Jesus. For followers of Christ, death has no victory, and it has no sting. Jesus made sure of it. We have victory over sin and death in him. The last picture of judgment is the destructive wind. And this wind is described as drying up fountains and springs and stripping Israel of their treasures. When Jacob names his sons in Genesis 41, it says the name of the second he called Ephraim. Ephraim, we've been talking about. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, Ephraim did experience fruitfulness and prosperity, but it would not endure. The east wind would destroy all remaining fruit. Last verse of chapter 13. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. Chapter 13 ends the same way that chapter 12 did last week. Israel's going to remain guilty and she's going to suffer the consequences for her rebellion. Rebellion against God always leads to punishment. There will be no future generation. Hosea is using again that intentional fertility language, focusing on what the Israelites hold most dear. God's judgments might seem excessive to us here, as they have throughout Hosea, but they are not arbitrary. These horrific practices of war that Hosea describes, the dashing the little ones on the rock and the ripping open of pregnant women, these practices have been specifically connected to the Assyrians. They were ruthless in their warfare, attacking women and children. It was both physical and psychological, destroying not just the current generation in war, but also the next. And this is my interpretation, but I think the inclusion of these practices was maybe Hosea's way of bringing Assyrian warfare specifically to the mind of his listeners and readers. He's not going to soften his warning by putting it into nicer terms, and he wants them to know what is coming and who specifically will be bringing it. And this is his way of telling them that. The destruction coming to God's people through Assyria would be brutal and horrific. But this is the type of judgment that we all deserve for sin. And judgment has indeed fallen, but it fell on Jesus in our place. Chester says, God's anger, as it were, is bearing down on us 
coming to crush us. But before it reaches us, God turns it away and onto the cross. And Christ absorbs the terrible force of God's anger in full. Father and Son cooperate together at the cross to avert their anger from us if we turn to Jesus. Now, this work of judgment on the Israelites is not the last word from God, not in Hosea and certainly not in the Bible as a whole. Isaiah 2.4 gives us this promise. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. A prince of peace has come, and a day of eternal peace is coming. It's good news. We're going to move into chapter 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you your words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will no more say our God to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. Chapter 14 is Hosea's final call to Israel. We've seen a few, chapter 3, chapter 6, chapter 12. He's saying, return, come back. You have stumbled, but that doesn't mean that you've fallen completely. We can recover from a stumble. There is still hope for change and restoration. Turn toward the Lord. He will not give up on you. That sounds good, but what does that look like practically? How do we do that? Starting in verse 2, Hosea gives us a framework for repentance. It's like confession how-to. Chester calls this a liturgy of turning, which I love. Hosea is showing us the way back home to God. So what is the way? First, we must confess with our mouths. We must bring our words to God. We must speak to him. This is a relationship. We wouldn't expect a person to magically be reconciled to us without talking to them. So why do we do that with God? We have to go to him, turn toward him, and speak. And what do we say? Hosea tells us. He says, ask God to take away your sin. We admit to God that we have sinned, and we don't make excuses or try to play it down. We tell him what those specific sins are, even though he already knows. It is healing for us to say it out loud. And we know now with confidence that this has already been done in Jesus. John 1 says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The second thing is to ask God to accept what is good. And what is good here means our verbal repentance. So we're asking God to accept our sacrifice of confession. In Hebrews 13, we're called to this very same practice. It says, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And Psalm 69 does the same. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. 
This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. What? Man, our words will be our sacrifice offered on God's altar. No bulls necessary. And this will please him more than burnt offerings. That's good news for us because we don't have burnt offerings to give. The third thing is to confess that God is the only true God, the only Savior. So here we are acknowledging what is true about God and forsaking all others. Assyria won't save Israel. Horses won't save them. Idols won't save them. For us, restored relationships won't save. Perfectly curated social media feeds won't save. The right neighborhood won't save. The next best job won't save. Whatever it is. If it's not God, it won't save us. Plain and simple. Hosea doesn't want us to just say we're sorry for looking to other saviors. He wants us to actually say we're going to turn away from them. Actually make a physical heart turn away from them and toward God. The next thing is to accept the mercy of God, our Father. God stands ready to receive our repentant hearts. Do you remember Hosea 5 and 6? God said he would return to his place until God's people returned to him. And then he would heal them and he would love them. We have to believe that. We have to believe in the cross of Jesus. We have to believe that when he said it is finished, he meant it. We have to take God's mercy and live within it and extend it to others. And the last thing we do is to do it again and do it again and do it again and do it again until Jesus comes back. Take your words to the Lord. Turn toward what is good and away from what is not. Make it a rhythm of your life. Make it a sacred practice. Keep turning toward him again and again and again. When you don't want to, when you do want to, again and again. He will meet you every time. I have to give you another Chester quote. It's too good. If you turn to God today by day, then God promises you this. Joy in the midst of suffering, confidence in the face of guilt, contentment in every circumstance, freedom in the midst of constraint, peace in the midst of problems, love in the midst of rejection, strength in the midst of weakness. Above all, it means eternal life, secure in a new creation where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. You can flourish if you turn to God. And that is what the next section is all about. Verse 4, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoot shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Imagine Hosea 
with all he experienced in his life with Gomer, receiving these words from God. Imagine him applying them to Gomer and applying them to himself. What hope that must have given him. Imagine how healing that would have been for him to hear. God will heal Gomer of her apostasy. That word means her turning away. He will heal Hosea and Israel too. He promised this in Hosea 6.1 and he repeats the promise again. It's just as God calls out in Jeremiah 3, Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. God is the healer. Sin is the sickness and Christ is the cure. Matthew 9 says Jesus came for the sick. When we know we are sick, we start looking for the cure. And in Jesus, we have healing forevermore. In Revelation 22, we read about what flows out from God and from the Lamb. It's a river that feeds the tree of life. And what is on the tree of life leaves for the healing of the nations. So healing is flowing out forever from God. Eternal healing originates from God. So God is our healer forever. But he's also our lover. God's going to love Gomer freely, and he will love Hosea and Israel too. What a promise for Gomer. What a promise for the Gomers in the room. What a promise to be loved when you don't deserve it. God's love here is abundant. Focus on that word freely. It's the same word used for a free will offering in the temple. It's an above and beyond kind of love. It's an over-the-top kind of love. It's lavish. It is beyond duty, beyond necessity. God is being so extra with his love. (laughs) This is the way that Jesus lived, too. What did he say when he that he came for in John 10. He said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. God is all about that abundant, overflowing, above and beyond stuff. That's how he loves. That's how he lives. And that's how he talked about joy too. And that's what he wants for us. And he knows that the only way for us to have abundant life is through returning to him. He is the only place that we can get this kind of healing and love. And why will God heal and love this way? It says, because his anger has turned. They turn to him, he turns to them. Both parties are taking part in the turning. Now, at the beginning of the summer, I told you all my personal Gomer story. I told you the hard part, but tonight I get to recount the glorious part. God healed me of my turning away, and he loved me freely. I felt it. I still feel it. He drew me back to himself, and I have experienced the very same abundance that this passage is talking about. I have felt the love of the Lord poured out in my life. But he didn't just heal me. He healed my husband, and he healed the broken places in our marriage. And when we finally decided to turn fully toward him, there was release. There was relief. There was joy, and there was love, and there was hope again. But that was just the beginning. God keeps healing and loving me even now. He keeps revealing and healing even the tiniest little broken places that still remain in me, in my marriage, 
in all of us. He does this for the rest of our earthly lives. Psalm 23 says, Surely his goodness and mercy will follow me for all the days of my life. All the days. We are works in progress, and he is committed to walking with us through every single day. This is our God. He doesn't change. He will always be a healer, and he will always be a lover. If you haven't experienced that from him yet, will you turn to him? Will you turn to him and ask him tonight to heal you and to love you and get totally extra with you from now until eternity? I believe he'll do it. Don't be afraid to ask him. So God heals and he loves and he starts to make things grow. This is garden language. Israel is described as fresh and deeply rooted and increasing. They have a future. Israel is going to be like a blossoming flower or a vine, a beautiful, deep-rooted, fragrant tree. There are several other places in Isaiah and the Psalms that describe Israel as a growing or blossoming, healthy plant. I'd love to read them all for you. They're up there on the screen. Psalm 52 is my favorite. God connects righteousness here with flourishing and joy and love and gratefulness. When we begin sowing righteousness, we will reap all these things because our righteous God will give the growth. So the specific plants that Hosea mentions, he mentions the lily, which doesn't look like much at first when it's closed. Trust me, I watched a time-lapse video of it last night on the internet. (laughs) But then when it's fully blossoms, it's like this totally impressive, beautiful thing. Talks about the olive tree, which I could talk about an olive tree all day. This is amazing to me. They're evergreen. They grow in the desert. They're resistant to pests and to weather. They can produce fruit for a thousand years or more in the worst of conditions. And they can regrow completely from a stump. They're like almost totally indestructible. And then the the cedar tree of Lebanon They're huge, sturdy, strong, pleasing aroma, deep, deep roots. God's comparing Israel to all these things, implying that when his people come back, they will flourish. They will grow into something beautiful. They will be strong and resistant and won't be shaken, no matter the circumstances, like the olive tree. And they'll have the opportunity to produce fruit for years to come. And we have that too. God says Israel will be like a comforting shade in verse 7. There's some debate over whether verse 7 is talking about God providing the shade for Israel or Israel, the nation slash tree, providing shade to individual Israelites. But either way, God's the great protector, the great comforter of his people. And any shade or comfort that his people can provide to others is because it originates from him. Isaiah 25 says, Isaiah says, God has been a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. He calls Israel flourishing grain. This is a reversal of Hosea 2.9, where God said he was going to take the grain back. 
But now he promises to make them flourish like a field full of grain. Lastly is famous wine, and we don't know much about the wine of Lebanon, but we can guess it was pretty good since it's included in this list of good things. You know what to take away from all of this imagery? Israel will grow and flourish if they return to the giver of life, the vine dresser, the one who gives growth. I love Isaiah 27. It says, this is God saying, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it. We are a pleasant vineyard in the eyes of the Lord. He is our keeper. He is watering us constantly with living water that never runs dry. If you are in Christ and you're afraid that you're not growing enough, take your fears to our Father, the perfect gardener, and let him remind you that he sees you this way, beautiful, blossoming, flourishing. Verse 8. Oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Here we find God's final fatherly cry. You're mine, Israel. I don't keep company with idols. I take care of you. I always have. I make the good things grow. Just come back to me. He calls himself an evergreen cypress, which is a tree that is ever full of life and strength. And even though the cypress tree does not produce fruit, the Hebrews don't mind mixing metaphors. God leaves us with a reminder here that all fruit comes from him, and we can't produce any on our own. We've got to go back to him. All right. Our last verse in Hosea. Whoever is wise... Let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. This is Hosea's final call for Israel and us to pay attention. He's saying, pay attention. Don't fall into the trap of idolatry anymore. Learn from the mistakes of the past. Walk forward in faith. Walk forward in relationship with your loving father God, your loving husband God. Now this verse leaves Hosea's prophecy open-ended. The response is Israel's to make. Will they turn or not? Will we? You see, the prophecy is open-ended for us too. The whoever includes us. We must decide whether or not we will heed Hosea's words and return to the Lord. Hosea says only the wise and discerning will understand his message. We've talked about wisdom and Israel's lack of it several times this summer. Wisdom is humble reliance on God, faithful obedience to his ways, and it starts with complete reverence and awe of him. Psalm 107 gives a similar call to Hosea's. It says, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. If we are wise, we will think about Hesed. That is what Hosea has been all about. So count yourselves wise, ladies. 
Considering the great and inexhaustible love of God is connected with wisdom. Now, those of us who are in Christ are becoming more and more like him each day. And if all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, like Colossians 2 says, then we are becoming more and more wise as part of our sanctification. In Christ, with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be confident that we possess godly wisdom. John 8 says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. And John 18 says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So if we fear the Lord, if we are in awe of him, then we will become wise. We will. And if we are wise, we will understand God's call to return and we will return. But Hosea doesn't only address the wise, he addresses the transgressor as well. He says the transgressors will stumble in the ways of the Lord. He's presenting all readers with a decision. Will you heed God's call and walk in his ways, or will you ignore him and stumble? In Jesus, we are presented the same line of decision. In fact, Jesus is the ultimate line of decision. What you believe about him determines the trajectory of your life. Jesus is a cornerstone to some and a stumbling block to others. 2 Corinthians 2 says, followers of Christ are the fragrance of life to some and the fragrance of death to others. And it's through that fragrance that the knowledge of Christ spreads to others who then are also presented with the question of what to think about Jesus. This is the perennial call of God, of the Bible, of the gospel. Hosea asks us all, what will we do in response? Wise people, wise women, will turn to the Lord and confess their sins. And our merciful God will always respond to this turning with ridiculous, free love and healing and abundance. Always. We've come to the end of our text. Hosea is over. But the story of Israel is not. So what actually happened after Hosea prophesied? Well, what he said was going to happen, happened. Judgment-wise and salvation-wise. The Israelites were exiled to Assyria starting in 740 B.C. Samaria falls in 722 B.C. The northern kingdom would never appear again. And this probably happened in Hosea's lifetime, but we're not sure. Judah was exiled to Babylon about 605 B.C. This included Daniel and his pals. The return from exile happened in 539 B.C. Then we had a few hundred years under Persian rule, some other rulers. 300 years of silence where God didn't speak to his people. And then Jesus comes. So Hosea's prophecies came true in some immediate ways with the exile and return of God's people, but also in ultimate ways with the coming of Jesus. Now, in the first session, if you remember, I shared a list of things that we could expect to happen as we studied Hosea. I wanted us to consider if what we expected to happen actually happened by asking you a few questions. My favorite thing to do is ask you guys questions. So, Did Hosea do what we expected it to do? Let's consider. 
Do we have a greater affection toward God than we did eight weeks ago? Are we more committed to him? More committed to turning toward him and pursuing him as he has pursued us? Are we more aware of the lesser loves in our lives and more committed to turning away from them? Was our unfaithfulness and fickle love exposed as we read? Did we experience heartbreak over our sin? Are we more committed to the family of God? Do we have greater enthusiasm to serve? Do we have a greater love for the lost, a greater urgency to tell people the good news of Jesus? Were we made uncomfortable at all by God's intimate and unstoppable pursuit or by his judgment? Did he wound us in any way or expose any old wounds? Do we see God more for the alluring husband and the tender father that he is? Do we believe more fully that he is a healer and a redeemer? Have we repented and turned toward him for healing and for love? Now, in asking these questions, I'm not expecting a total 180 life transformation or that you would answer yes and amen to every single one of these questions. But if God has peeled back even a few more layers of who he is for you to see, if he's taken even one scale off your eye so you can see him more clearly, then Hosea has done what Hosea intended to do. And our good, good God is worthy of praise. Now, I have to say it to you just one more time. Turn to him, okay? Turn to Jesus. Your life depends on it. Turn and face him and move toward him and move forward in his direction all of your days. When you lose your way, confess it to him and return again. Let him heal you. Let him make you whole. He stands ready to do it. Let him cover you with his ridiculous, never-ending, unstoppable, always-pursuing love. In Christ, we have the opportunity to live in the light of his love for all of our days. Let's not miss it. Let's not choose the lesser when the greater is right in front of us, just waiting for us to come. Come to Jesus, sisters. Choose him like he has chosen you. Let's praise him. I'm going to pray for us, and then the worship team is going to join us, and we're going to spend some time in praise. God, Father, our husband, you have been so good to us this summer. I believe that you have peeled back some scales from some eyes and that you've shown some of these women in this room more of who you are. That your word has done what it comes to do. To break us apart sometimes. To wound us, but also to heal us. 
God, I pray that we wouldn't just leave here tonight saying, oh, that was a great Bible study. Maybe I'll do that again next summer. I pray that there are changed lives in this room. God, that we would do something different, knowing what we know. That we would see the story of Israel, the story of Hosea and Gomer, and we would live differently because of it. That we wouldn't just go on living, doing those things that you told us through this study that you didn't want us to do anymore. That we wouldn't keep holding on to those things that you wanted us to let go of. That we wouldn't keep pursuing anything that isn't you. God, I just pray that this study would be a stone of remembrance in Ebenezer. That we would remember what you've done here. And that you would get lots and lots and lots of glory from it. And that we would tell everyone we know what you've done, what has happened. That we would be encouraged to keep studying your word and keep pursuing you and to join with other women in doing it. That we would tell everyone we know about you, about this God who comes to us and loves us so we don't deserve it. We know how many people are out there right now, Lord, looking for love, devoting themselves to things that are perishable, things that will pass away. I pray over the women in this room that they would pursue only what is imperishable, only what is eternal, only what is everlasting. That we would spend our lives pursuing you, pursuing righteousness, leaving behind all the sin that clings so closely, and just making a beeline straight to you, Lord. Let it be so, God, and we just pray even now that you would accept our praise and worship tonight. Yes, for all that you've done, but more for who you are. We love you for who you are, the same way that you love us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. For more resources and encouragement about how to go deep in God's Word, visit us at DaytonWomenInTheWord.com on Instagram and Facebook. May you dwell richly in His Word today, sister.